Brilliant Minds is so much more than a two-day creativity and thought leadership gathering in Stockholm. It's a 365-day year-round journey. It's the journey of our founders, Spotify's Daniel Ek and Ash Pornori, the journey of our board, team members, the young entrepreneurs we meet year-round whose ideas will change the world. In a small way, it's also my journey. My journey as CEO, as a working mother, as a child of immigrants, as a person who really believes that bringing people together and uplifting each other can make the world better. This podcast is our collective journey. Brilliant Minds is about building collective voice and community everywhere we go and sharing the bold voices in that community who aren't afraid to challenge the way things have always been done in order to create things that have never been imagined before. In this podcast, I hope you join me in cities around the world where I'll exclusively interview some of the most creative people, men and women, young and old, across all sectors, fashion, art, tech, music, science, business, food, people that share the values of brilliant minds like transparency, gender equality, social justice, compassion, and a love of the environment. People that aren't afraid to use their voice for change. Follow me at other great tech events, art summits, media gatherings, where I'll give you an inside scoop on where the future is going and how you can help shape it. Join me in the Brilliant Minds podcast on the go around the world. I can't wait to hear what you think along the way. Kiran Gandhi is one of the founding members of MIA, a Harvard MBA, an electronic artist for her own project, Madam Gandhi, and an activist whose mission is to elevate and celebrate the female voice. This weekend, she was hosting the sold-out after-party to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. Being one of the strongest voices for women's rights, she was interviewed at a Women in Public Service Project event a few weeks ago by Michelle Herrera Mulligan a writer and the editor-in-chief of Cosmo for Latinas. In this interview, Michelle and Kieran talked to the silent people voting for Trump and what it's like to be a woman of color after this election. All right, so my name is Michelle Herrera-Mulligan, and I am guest hosting the Brilliant Minds podcast today. And I have as my guest... The brilliant Karen Gandhi, who is a founding member of MIA, um, a Harvard MBA, and an incredible electronic artist for her own project called Madame Gandhi. And um, we're going to be talking about some real stuff, just what it's like to be working women of color after this election, trying to inspire other women of color and speak our truth, and what does that look like on the ground. So. We're just going to go into a lot of different to- topics, and I'm going to jump right on in. So, Kieran, you're going all. We were just talking about how we're going all over the country right now, just trying to drop some reality about where we are as young women of color. And first of all, I just want to ask you, what's that been like? What have your performances been like ever since November eighth? How have you been feeling? I think my work has had far more meaning um, since the election results happened because I think. 
in the year and a half that I was traveling to campuses and to universities, um, to various audiences, uh, doing shows, I felt like I was seeing the future as female and I felt like everyone agreed. <laughs> you know, everyone's like, yep, it is. And I felt like it was an echo chamber of positivity. I felt like I was speaking to women who agreed and I actually felt like we were making such a difference because even during the election, it seemed like Hillary was definitely gonna win. It also seemed like when Trump would say sexist things, there would be such a strong backlash, which I was really proud of, you know? And then the election results completely caught me off guard. And I felt like I had a coming of age in just that week alone, because I had to go through my own emotional healing, my own trauma of really stepping into the shoes of understanding there's so much work to be done. And then intellectualizing it so that when I was on a stage and talking to people, I had nuggets of hope and inspiration and wisdom that I could pass to my audience with the hope of inspiring, with the hope of giving um, bravery. And I remember the week after the election, we had three talks scheduled all in LA, a Tuesday, a Thursday, and a Saturday. And I thought they were all gonna be celebration, <laughs> celebration talks, but they were really talks of mourning. And I felt like the audience came out in maybe triple or quadruple the amount that maybe they would have otherwise. And it ended up being three evenings of just healing circles for women that started with me telling my story and why I'm so passionate about gender equality, but then many women feeling the bravery to speak up and talk about their daily sexism experiences or why this election is going to be so difficult for them, etc. Uh, so I would say that's how the election has given even more meaning to my work. And, you know, to your point about being a woman of color and how important it is to give voice to that community, holding space and what it means to gather together to talk about things we don't get to talk about daily. Well, I, I really love that you just said that, talking about it daily, because I think that that's literally what we're doing right now, and that's what we both have been doing. I can see it in your face right now mm -hmm. for at least a few weeks, if not longer. Mm -hmm. And for me, too, I mean, for a couple of years now, well, I spent about four years being a founding editor of a magazine for young Latino women who feel invisible, yes. feel shut up. And then I went into doing as entrepreneurial work, a work with an organization that promotes entrepreneurship for women, mm -hmm. but really getting in there and talking to women who are trying, like, what is the startup tools? What can I do? Yes. And then, you know, just fast forward to today, I was, you know, on the ground doing cam canvassing, but also covering it for Latina Magazine on social media. So I was doing Facebook Lives. And wow. there was a moment in Phoenix where it was the night, you know, the night before the election, literally, or it was either there that night or a couple, it was the last night for them to uh, register or something. I can't remember, it was like one of those critical nights before, mm -hmm. right? And um, we were sitting there looking at kids who had gone into yards with dogs chasing them, who were like, who had families who were undocumented, who were looking in the eyes like, we are gonna do everything possible to make this change happen, just make this happen tomorrow. So all of this is, lead, I'm leading up to a specific place with this. I'm taking you to like that November 7th moment. Mm. Then we fly, and I, I looked at, like it was literally the middle of the night. It was the last lit drop, I remember now, and everybody was standing in a circle, and I thought, we've got this. There's way too many of us working on this right now. Right. Because everybody was also projecting on their own platforms their right. voice, right? right? But then the next day, obviously, a sea change and everything was different. So what I'm trying to say is, what is the, dis we're, as millennial and younger women, 
or speaking to a largely millennial audience, which is I assume you do, and younger women, we, we seem to constantly tell the story, right, that our platforms are the ones that matter, that the fact that we have our Snapchats, that the fact that we have our own blogs, the fact that we release our own albums, that who cares about the mainstream, right? Who cares about all that stuff? So what I'm trying to ask you now is, it looks like it actually did, like, it did matter to say we were talking to an echo. So what's the next step here? It's like we need to build ourselves up, but how do we get our voices into another space where we're invisible? Mm, that's a great question. I'm so happy you asked that because I do think that many of us just have conversations that are safe with our friends who agree with us, and we don't want to deal with the conversations that are painful or that might have backlash. And this concept of the silent majority is very dangerous because we didn't know as the sort of liberal elite um, the power of those who felt like they were disenfranchised but who felt like Trump gave them a voice. And so my work now is to say, how do I understand why we were quieted in this election, why we missed the margin on this election, and how do we make sure we know that are, we can align with those who voted for Trump and who felt disenfranchised to say our missions are actually aligned, that if you felt quiet and we felt quiet, how do we understand each other so that as many Americans as possible can be their best selves? And Michelle Obama says this all the time, that the well-being of a country is measured by how well the women are doing often because women are the ones raising the kids, but also because women end up being the foundations of a society. And so she means it both from a very physical health perspective, but also just a, a mental and leadership, emotional perspective. And so I'd love to see conversations fostered between those who felt disenfranchised and therefore voted for Trump, and then women who, who didn't, who really supported Hillary or Bernie and, and felt like that was the way their voices could be heard. How do we have these conversations and come out of it stronger? I think that would be good. Uh, one way that we can do that, that I think that you're embracing right mm. now in a, in a stunning fashion, like when I was watching you, so Kieran just gave a performance, we were in Washington, D.C., and he gave a performance in front of people who are really innovating, innovating in this space of public change, you know, both private and public change, and looking at the best ideas of how we're going to channel all of this data and mm. make a big shift, mm. right? And I think that the message that your music just conveyed, sort of... Own your voice. Directly. Yes. And specifically was, own yes, 100% own, own your, your voice. voice. And I'd love to just jump right into that and say that I feel like so much of the messaging towards women is to question yourself, to doubt yourself, to say, oh, I'm so sorry, but X, Y, Z is my opinion, or I'm so sorry, is it okay if I raise my hand and I tell you what I think? And this is cultivated from the from a classroom uh, from a young age, you know, and then it goes into the workplace and then definitely goes into positions of senior leadership. I mean, the theme of the conversation today was, why don't we see more women in positions of public office? Why don't we see more women at the top levels in, in the private sector? And the reason is because we're socialized to question every move. We're socialized to think, oh, well, is it an ego thing if I want to run? Is it um, you know, will someone think that I'm being too conceited if I if I put my name in, you know? A men wake up and they're like, I'm going to kill it today. You know, that's the, the marketing is derived towards being the hero. Whereas for women, it's about being meek, about being sweet, about being demure, and that's rewarded by our society instead of being brave, loud, bold, um, a leader, a visionary. And 
I would really love to see each of us in our communities make sure that we don't do that, not only to other women, but to other um, communities with a lesser voice. Because the more we quiet each other, the more we make it difficult for those voices to be heard. And I do really believe that the best ideas win out, that the best ideas should win out. And it, shouldn't, it shouldn't matter, as Katarina Berg at Spotify said earlier today, it shouldn't matter who's saying it. Just the idea whether a, a white older male says it or a, a young black female says it, it shouldn't matter. If it's a good idea, it should be heard. But how do we make sure that the young black woman in the office has the bravery to even raise her hand and even say the idea? When I was at business school in my first semester, I remember so often being way too afraid to raise my hand. And the thing that's taught over and over is to say it, to say it, to say it, because your idea might stimulate the next person over. And so for me, this idea of own your voice, don't be afraid, the reason why my record is called Voices, I mean, the reason why that theme is there over and over again is because to me, that's what I think is the most difficult part for, for women and for, for minority communities today. Well, you just, you nailed it there. Like, you went exactly to where I was, like, I want to get really deeply into that because I think... To, to me, it seems that even when you own your voice and you project it most loudly, that you could actually reach over the gap and reach mm -hmm. people that aren't different than you even. Mm -hmm. Because when I was watching you perform, I was thinking, how dope would it be to see her perform mm -hmm. in front of an audience of people that have never seen her before? Well, today, mm -hmm. probably you did. But I mean, what if it had been all white men? What if it had been mm -hmm. in Kentucky? Yeah. Like, part of me is really thinking, maybe they'd be into it because totally. you were so distinctly you. And, <laughs> I guess I'm wondering, like, has that ever happened? Has your music ever reached a corner that was unexpected for you? I think um, one of the biggest things that I said, don't be irritated. One of the biggest things that I said um, was uh, after the election, you know, how do we reach audiences in the middle of the country? How do we travel to places that could really love this message and didn't even know that this way of thinking exists? And mm -hmm. not that it doesn't exist, but that they feel disconnected from it. Because if the liberal elite, even though it has, it maybe have some good ideas, for someone who's grown up in a family in, in, in Indianapolis and they feel connected to their brother, sister's mom and dad more so than they could feel connected to a, a tweet from someone in New York City, you know, even if they love the ideas that come out of New York, their affinity and their their ideas are going to be more loyal to their immediate family and what their immediate homegrown values are. And that's the thing that we have to unpack. If I'm a woman married to a man, I think at the end of the day, what we saw a lot of is our allegiance will be to our families and to our husbands more so than it's going to be to some sort of idea in theory of feminism that's on mm. each of the coasts. Um, so to your point, yes, I do want to go to places, but I don't want to go with this idea of like, let me come in and educate you, you right, know, because that's where right. we fail. This is so asinine, yep. because what we're saying is like our way of life that works for us here in New York City is exportable to your way of life in the middle of the country, but it's not, it's really not. And that's where we are being ignorant and not being mindful of the fact that each of us live very differently and that different values of feminism and liberation are only exportable in certain ways. And you have to come in with some sort of empathy and, and being analytical to know whether your idea can fit. I think the way I would do it is go in and foster discussion. Have a person of color speak to a white person. Have a person from New York City speak to a person, um, you know, like I said, in Indianapolis or wherever. Like, that is powerful. But not come in and say, I have the stage and I can just say whatever and tell you whatever I think. Because that's not going to work. That's what we've been doing. Well, 
I think you bring up a really good point, and I would even say that the same would work for the reverse side, because if you actually look at, to back get back to your point about young people of color mm -hmm. not feeling empowered mm -hmm. to share their voices and not projecting themselves into even pitching their ideas. I mean, I worked in almost every medium now, from film, music to te you know television, and and now social media. And it's the same thing over and over again. Even when I would get up in front of a room of 5,000 people and say, nobody's pitching me. I want everybody here to pitch me. Like of that 5,000 people, two people would pitch me if that. I mean, that's like literally how low the numbers are talking about. But it's not just me. The Washington Post will tell you the same thing. Mm. They'll tell you we have 85% white men mm. because 85% white men are who pitch to us. Mm. And you know what? They're not wrong about that necessarily. Mm. I mean, it's true, and it's, it is exactly what you're saying. It's us as women having the bravery. But even for me, there's so many times where I feel imposter syndrome, this idea that, oh, right. I didn't qualify. I, I, I got into Harvard Business School because um, I'm brown or because I'm female because I work in music and blah, blah, blah. You know, We have so much imposter syndrome uh, which leads us to eat into our own self-confidence. And I go through that all the time because my work is literally in combating this lack of self-confidence. I often have to work on my own insecurities just to be the example of the very thing I'm trying to foster. It's very interesting. I mean, I can barely sing. I've been drumming my whole life, so I have imposter syndrome when it comes to the stage. But I hit my six notes that I can hit, and I hit them <laughs> loud and proud. You're a great job. Most of the songs are in the same key because at the end of the day, I, I feel imposter syndrome in terms of my ability to sing because it's not what I grew up doing. But I know that it has value in terms of the message I'm trying to communicate, and so I do it. And I do it as confidently as I can because that's the whole point. I mean... You've seen so many men or people who've grown up in very confident situations get up and do whatever, and oftentimes it's good and oftentimes it's bad, but in taking that risk is where the beauty comes from. And if you don't even put yourself in that brave, risky situation, you don't even have the possibility of breaking molds, mm -hmm. of being successful, of being the next Albert Einstein. You have to be brave enough to fail, and women are not given that space. Well, I mean, that's an interesting point, too, because maybe part of the reason why a lot of women of color, or even women in general, are afraid of failing is because do they pay a bigger price for failing? Of failure? course, of course, 100%. And that's, that's why the system is so tough. That's why this work is not easy. That's why we've been doing this for so long. And I, even for me, how many bad shows have I had until there's a good show? I mean, every time we do a show, after the third or fourth time when it feels really good and easy, immediately I change it. Immediately I changed it because I'm like, oh, good, we got it, we did it. Now what's next? You know, we had the two bad and the two really good, and now we got to change it up. You know, and that that makes our fans keep coming back to the show. That makes it fresh. That makes it authentic. That makes me live my very truth, which is take risk, do something different, be bold, and fail forward. So can you give some takeaways? Like, there's going to be a lot of young girls listening to this, and if they're, and I'm going to make sure they are because I'm going to share this wide on different platforms. So. I get this question all the time, and I think it's funny because like you, I have my own little crumbling, quivering ghost inside me that's freaking out at every public appearance, but but they ask me, like, how do you make, how did you get to this point? I don't see you failing ever, mm. and I just don't know where to start. I need some clear takeaways about mm. where to start. I feel I take risk every day. It's a risk to even be here. I'm not qualified to speak on public policy. I've never held public office in my life. Every day is a risk. No, but every day is a risk. Right. Tomorrow, I'm going to go speak to a whole drum academy of people who have been drumming far longer than I have, but they want me to speak. Every day, I feel like I'm taking risk. I really feel that way, and it's because I don't mind if it's bad. 
I don't mind if it's bad because mm -hmm. what's the worst that can happen? Someone judges you? Well, at least I'm on the stage. At least I'm putting myself mm -hmm. out there. At least I'm trying to be the best version of myself. At least I spoke in DC after being, after having been on a set for four days, nonstop, waking up at three in the morning, doing a red eye, coming in, landing, preparing on the Uber over here, as to what I was going to say, and then doing it because now not only do I have a bunch of frames of reference for how I want to improve the next time I do a talk. I have frames of reference for how I want to do a daytime gig in a corporate setting versus a nighttime gig in a nightclub. You know, the more you do, the more you have data to self-examine and get better. If you don't even put yourself forward, if you don't get used to that vulnerability of failing forward, you're never going to take risks. And the more you get older too, the more we close up. So mm. that's the biggest thing. And we don't teach, we shouldn't be teaching girls perfection we should be teaching girls bravery mm -hmm. go up there and fuck up who gives a shit at least you're on the stage at least you're on the stage and the stage is a, is, is a metaphor it doesn't mean literally in my work it's obviously a stage but if you applied for a job and you didn't get it okay good you have now experience of how to apply if you were in a job for a year and it didn't work out because of x y and z now you have a year's worth of experience to know yourself to know what you want out of life to know what you want out of a corporate setting i mean Girls do not take risk because if we fail, the repercussions, as you say, feel so much higher. But there's bravery in being the first because then the more that other women see you, they say, oh, okay, well, here's an, this is what I was going to say. Like, the best scenario for me is to get on the stage and play the drums and have all the girls in the audience be like, oh, you're on a stage playing drums like that? I can play drums a million times better. Get mm -hmm. me on the stage. Oh, you can get on a stage and speak like that? I can speak a million times better. <laughs> Give me the stage, right? In me taking that risk and being myself and being whatever level I'm at, whether it's a talk or a performance, the people in the audience feel inspired to do it themselves. This is when you make real change, being a leader who inspires other leaders. That's my dream. That's awesome. You said that so beautifully. Thank you for that. Um, so I wanted to just ask you uh, two more quick questions and just to put us in this historical moment. So now we're in a place where we are moving forward, building feminism. And in that, so to take it from the individual place to a movement place, why is it important for people to stand up politically too? Like a lot of, I've heard from a lot of people, I feel totally defeated politically. There's a lot at stake. There's a big million women march next month. Yes. Should should women stand up? Does it still make an impact? How should we women We are afraid stand? to be political because we don't want to be gunned down. Even for me, like, sorry, not gunned down literally, more just like with our friends p mm -hmm. pushing us down. There's so many times where I'll engage in my politics and I'll speak my truth and then someone will shut me down or tell me that I'm wrong or make me feel bad about it because... Politics is so personal. So anytime that I express my views, if it's conflicting with somebody else, it feels like it's a direct attack on their soul and their well-being and their truth of life, which is why this election was so tense and that why so many people who supported Trump couldn't be vocal about it. We had, that's why we had such misleading data in the media, too, because we had quieted so many voices. That's not okay. And you get practice at being better at speaking about politics the more you do it. It's the same idea that I was just discussing, the bravery to try. I was with... Raz, who was one of the founding members of the Fugees in his beautiful home in Bev Hills on Sunday evening just chatting and he was telling me his thoughts on why Trump won and why he thinks Trump might, might actually be fine and I couldn't believe it he's a political black man who used to play in the Fugees Praz. so I'm listening to him and I'm like how can you be telling me this and it made me have so much anxiety in my stomach 
but to listen to him felt good. It felt difficult. And then for me to quickly practice formulating my own responses to this very difficult and opinionated perspective was so empowering because this is someone who I would think was a no-brainer for Hillary. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't, I mean, maybe he did some work on the campaign, but he was, he understood why Trump might actually work. And so I think for those of us who have a political opinion, practice speaking about it in difficult conversation so that you develop your own responses to people's thoughts so you understand how you yourself feel and so that you can inspire others you know there's so much bravery in having those difficult conversations sometimes you come out feeling bad but times you've come out feeling all right cool well thank you so so much for taking the time to talk to us today and do you have anything else you want to say or talk about before Um, we wrap I think um, you mentioned that you had one other question, and I don't want you to feel like you can't. Okay. All right. Wow. All right. Well, I do have one question. It's kind of edgy here, but I and actually I've been dying to ask this. I wasn't sure if I would ask you offline, but I know what you're going to ask me, and I'm going to make you answer it also. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see. So, how important is it to be radical in being a feminist? Because you've taken some bold ass moves in your career, and. A lot of people are feeling like we just took a big slap in the face as feminists and it's time to start talking nice again, right? I mean, that's the overwhelming message that we're getting. Learn how to reach the across the aisle. Learn how to talk nice. But how important is it to stay strong and to stay fierce and stay edgy and angry? Oh, it's such, I, we think about this all the time, and I always think of it as levers, you know? Different levers are needed at different times. So... Sometimes with radicalism, you need to shock a society into questioning its most problematic norms. But in other times, in order to really have someone hear you, you need to be asking questions and let them speak first before you give your opinion. So that really you can ground what you think in the context of how they already think so that it's fair and that a productive conversation can be born. And so uh, I don't think it's a cop-out answer to say that both are needed. And you know, when I think specifically about the marathon, when I ran Free Bleeding last year, to combat period stigma around the world, I thought a lot about the landscape of how that sort of viral movement started. And I think of four levers specifically as to how any social justice movement really happens. The first one is the radical activism, the thing that really shocks people into the other extreme side of the spectrum. So that if you have a fairly middle of the road perspective, it doesn't seem that radical anymore, which is very useful. And the artists are good at that because if the artists and the activists live 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of every, where everybody else is and they put those ideas out there, then something that's like five or 10 years ahead doesn't seem that radical, so it becomes more accessible. Then the second thing is the media. You know, the media did an extraordinary job of covering the menstrual equity that happened last year and this year just to get the conversation going. And magazines like Cosmo, which I know you've had a long standing relationship, actually did a great job. Um, talking about alternative ways that women can care for themselves when on their periods. Besides just saying, like, here's how to look sexy while still on your period. It was instead, here's how to really take care of yourself. Here's how to feel good. Here's how to eat the right foods to make you have fewer cramps. Here's how to identify um, the symptoms of endometriosis. I mean, really empowering, useful tools that I had never seen before. I was just told, take some Midol and be quiet. You know, chill the (laughs) fuck out. Right. Right. So that was really beautiful. Then the third one is what we talked about today at the Wilson Center, which is public policy and, and, and lobbying and sort of using either your law or your public policy degree to influence um, 
yeah, the law of politics to make sure that tampons are not taxed at an exorbitant amount as a luxury item, because they're certainly not. Uh, and then the, the fourth one is innovation, and that's more on the private sector. How do we build products for women that make us feel better? And products that are not, again, like I said, geared towards us being our sexiest selves, and instead how about being our best selves, which then I think ends up having us be our sexiest selves anyway, you know, because we're not trying, we just are. So those four are related to your question about where is the role of radical activism, because I do think it's the thing that sparks all of the other three, which are the ones that are grounded in real change. Mm -hmm. And you're a Virgo, Virgos are on the ground getting shit done, and the Pisces are the ones running all the crazy marathons, you know, they're the <laughs> activists and the artists. And so it's a chain reaction. The arts make the media happen, the media gets everyone talking to then make the policy leaders feel like they have to do something about it. Then all the innovators come in and feel like, oh, there's a money-making opportunity here, let's make um, products for, for everyone to feel better. So the four are connected, that's the role of radical activism, and I think everyone should identify what they're good at so that they can play their role in this larger landscape for social change. Wow, that was perfect, that was phenomenal. Thank you so much, and I guess, I just ended here to answer myself, I guess. I think I would say, the, like you said, the answer is individual. And whether it's productive or not, um, my answer would be sometimes radicalism is productive. I think it was yes. productive at Standing Rock. I think it's been it was productive yes. with your um, marathon period run, <laughs> which I've shown to many people. Um, and I think when it starts a conversation and when it shows steadfastness and when it has an ultimate goal i think and when it's authentic i mean for me <laughs> and not ranty <laughs> you, know, you know the beautiful thing about that marathon and that, the thing that actually protected me from a lot of the crazy conversation online that would skew very negative right because um, it was both people really cheering me on but then also people being like this is so disgusting um the thing that protected me was the authenticity and the choice. I mean, genuinely, I was like, I don't want to run with a tampon. That sounds really uncomfortable. I don't want to run with a pad. I'm going to get chafed really badly. I don't know what women do. I really don't. And then it was the fact that there was so much silence. It dawned on me. I'm like, I'm a millennial, young, educated woman about to run a marathon. And I don't really know my best option. Like, isn't that weird? You know, mm -hmm. isn't that strange? Like, I was like, I'd rather just run bleeding freely than wear a tampon that's going to be like half in half out to carry an extra tampon for 26 miles to try to find a porta potty on the way like no i have a job to do is to run a marathon so i think you know it was radical in the sense that obviously i know that we don't free bleed in our society um but it didn't feel radical to me in the time it felt genuinely the right choice and so i think the authenticity of that and the earnestness in which i was like this is a weird societal norm that doesn't make sense to me that's, I think, what resonated. And I think when each of us are thinking about how we can make a difference, when we feel in our gut or in our mind that something is weird or something is off, question it. You know, question it. Because you might be onto something. And many people might be thinking the same thing that you do, but, but they, didn't, they didn't know how to articulate it. It's a great last word. Thank you so much for being with us today, Karen. Appreciate it. Nichelle, you're extraordinary. Thank you for all your work that you've been doing for women of color. Thank you so much for all your writing, for the travel that you do, for asking me all these intelligent questions. I thought you were going to ask the question about how um, more women at the top of the feminist movement should be uh, oh, right. women of color. I forgot that one. That's an important one. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and we have like a minute left, and I'll just say with that, you know, it is true that for many women of color, in terms of what's most salient to their identity is their ethnicity and their race more so than it is their gender. And they feel more solidarity with people who look like them from a race perspective as opposed to other women. 
And I think that's something that we really have to be mindful of because yes, the walks of women are so different depending on where you come from. And that those who have access to more privilege must take those who have access to less privilege with them and must fight for all people instead of just themselves. And we do see this classic mentality of very old school feminism and old school sort of civil rights in general, which is us first, then you. Us first, then you. And Martin Luther King used to always say, equality later means equality never. We're fighting for it right now. Um, and so I think it is important for more women of color to, to take part in feminism and to also have those who are of Caucasian backgrounds to recognize that they have a responsibility to those women in lesser positions of privilege to speak for them and empower them. Yes, absolutely. And I'll just end it with a question out there to the audience and all feminists and all women that were in the audience today, actually, because this is going to be broadcast on multiple platforms, that when we think about who we're, we're assigning that term of leader of our cause, who speaks for us as women, I think that we should really question who we default to, because we just went, got through an election where the majority of women of color did vote for Hillary Clinton, the candidate. So... I know that that's not an uncomfortable thing that people want to talk about, but we overcame a lot of internal dialogue. I know because I was on the ground knocking on doors in black and brown houses, and I heard the internal and external dialogue of all the messages we hear about women every day and what women are capable of and what we're not capable of. But in our communities, we chose a woman because we felt that a woman could do that job. Now, that was not chosen in every single community, so. I just don't want us to be overlooked in the hard work of building the, rebuilding the feminist movement. So think about who we have not engaged in this conversation. Think about rooms of women that I've been in in neighborhoods that nobody goes to, who when I ask who feels like they're a feminist today, 90% of the room raises their hand. And I'm sick of this stereotype that somehow Muslim women or Arabic American women or Latina women or African American women do not embrace this word because that is not my experience. And I would just challenge the narrative, right, because we're talking to a feminist group right now of not using that language anymore, not perpetuating that stereotype that we are not feminist communities, that we're not activated, that we're not, we don't believe in our matriarchs and our mothers and our leaders yes. and our grassroots activists and that we don't have them and that we don't believe that we're capable of equality even if we haven't achieved it yet. Mm -hmm. Amen. And we are capable of it. And I think even so many members of the trans and LGBT community are, are leading the way too, because yes. in being trans, you're loving, and trans female specifically, you're loving the fat, you're loving your femme identity, and you're embracing it wholeheartedly, which even many of us as women aren't able to do. So it's, it's very powerful. And, and what you're saying is so true. This unity is everything. And as women... Being collaborative is a skill set that we have, and we have to be better at embracing it. So thank you so much for this very provocative conversation. I'm Madam Gandhi, Kieran Gandhi. You can find me at Twitter, Madam Gandhi. All the music's on Spotify. The future is female. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michelle Hura Mulligan. You can find me at MHM Writer on Twitter. Thank you so much.